afternoon and thank you so much for tuning in to today's uh, episode of the Global Review. We'd like to begin by introducing our esteemed guest, Dr. Lobsang Sangye, uh, former Prime Minister of the Central Tibetan Administration between 2012 and 2021. So welcome, Dr. Sangye. Thank you so much for joining us. You're most welcome. Glad to be part of your show. Okay, uh, so a little bit about Dr. Sangye then. Dr. Sangye received a master's degree from Harvard Law School, uh, completing his dissertation titled Democracy in Distress, Is Exile Policy a Remedy? A Case Study of Tibet's Government in Exile in the year 2005 and was awarded the prestigious Yongke Kim 95 Prize for his work. In the same year, he was appointed research fellow at Harvard and promoted to senior fellow until early 2011. Um, when he took office as Kalon Tripa of the Central Tibetan Administration, serving then until 2012 when he was elected prime minister. So today's episode of the Global Review seeks to examine the question of contested Tibetan sovereignty, as well as the future of Tibet as a nation state in the context of contemporary political developments. Our principal line of inquiry will address themes such as Tibetan governance, uh, passive or nonviolent resistance, Chinese territorial ambitions, and relevant provisions of international law. We believe that Dr. Songe's insights will be um, very helpful in determining the extent of Tibetan administrative authority and the efficacy of, of governments in exile more generally. Um, so with this in mind, uh, let us begin with our first set of questions. So, Dr. Sangye, in your opinion, how has it been possible that legitimate arguments for the status of Tibet as a historically autonomous state have been so undermined by the Chinese Communist Party? Um, yes, historically, Tibet was an independent country. Um, I, I can give you several uh, uh, you know, uh, evidence or reasons. Number one is there was a treaty signed between China and Tibet. And it, the treaty was signed in 821 and 23. But it took two years for you know, the negotiators to travel from Tibet to China and China to Tibet, right? So it's called 821-23 treaty, in which uh, the language of the treaty said that Tibetans will be happy in the great country of Tibet, Chinese will be happy in the great country of China. So thereby recognizing each other as independent country. And also in that treaty, it says, uh, from this territory of west of China is Tibet. And for Tibetans, you know, from this territory east of that area is uh, China. So clear demarcation. And in fact, there's another line. The relationship between Tibet and China uh, is uh, more like uncle and nephew, right? So this is very interesting in the uh, Asian, rather East Asian context. If you review any of the treaties signed between Japan and China or Korea and China or Vietnam and China, they all said the relationship between Vietnam and you know, China was like father and son, sun and the moon. But Tibetans said, no, 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 father and son sounds too close. We are uncle and nephew, you know? So that's evidence number one. And throughout, um, so there is this, you know, narrative. Um, if you study China, uh, they always say, you know, it starts with Tang and Sung and, you know, Yuan and uh, Ming and Qing dynasty. There's like, a, you know, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, 
linear progression of one dynasty after another. But this is a Chinese-centric perspective, okay? But Tibetan-centric perspective or Mongolian-centric perspective will say no. Mongolian Empire lasted from 13th century all the way to 15th century for 400 years, 16th, 16th century, 400 years. We went and occupied China and Kublai Khan, they you know, lasted for almost 100, 100 years, right? So, but then the Mongolian Empire continued. Okay, Mongolia went and occupied China. So Yuan Dynasty was, was not Chinese dynasty. Right? Ming Dynasty overthrew Yuan Dynasty, saying they are foreigners, they are barbarians, right? So when Ming Dynasty came, they built, of course, it took thousand years to build that great wall, but Ming Dynasty invested lots of time to, you know, what do you call, strengthening the uh, Great Wall, thereby clearly indicating that outside of Great Wall, um, uh, it's a foreign country, right? Um, so, out in Mongolia was foreign country. Manchuria was foreign country. So, the point I'm trying to make is that the Chinese narrative is being challenged by Mongolian scholars and Tibetan scholars. So, all the way to now, uh, 1951, when Chinese army moved into Tibet, occupied uh, parts of Tibet, right, and forced Tibetans to sign 17-point agreement between Tibet and China. And the first provision of the 17-point agreement said that, you know, Tibet shall return to the motherland. So thereby, even that agreement acknowledges that Tibet was independent, is now returning to the motherland. But there was a forceful invasion and occupation of Tibet. One last evidence, when Nepal submitted its membership to the United Nations, uh, Nepal gave seven evidence to claim that they were independent. One evidence was their relationship with Tibet, treaty, you know, uh, bound relationship with Tibet. So historically, uh, I think, you know, it's clear that Tibet was an independent country. Now, Chinese narrative is trying to change that by claiming that Tibet was always part of China since antiquity. Uh, that's what they said. Initially, they said Tibet, uh, Tibet became part of China in the 13th century. So the historians in Tibet and China questioned that. Then they said, okay, Tibet belonged to China since 7th, 8th century uh, with the marriage. Uh, then that was also debunked. So now they say Tibet belonged to you know China since antiquity, but this is not accepted by most of the historians outside of China. So did I give you a long answer or you know, was it too long or too short? Because that's a very open-ended question. Yeah, no, that was very interesting, definitely, to see that through these various treaties, there's, there has definitely been a, a mutual sovereign recognition between Tibet and between China, and not only between these two these two countries, but other states as well, including the relevance of Nepal and, and Mongolia, as you mentioned, yes. Hmm. So now, um, on the subject of the Tibetan state itself and Tibetan administration, uh, specifically the centrality of, say, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, to Tibetan affairs, could you please describe um, the precise role of His Holiness in the CTA's governance and even the, the Tibetan movement more generally? You know, um, the Dalai Lama started ruling Tibet uh, from 1644 on, so mid 17th century. From 1644 all the way to 2011, so Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama's was the sovereign head. 
So during 14 Dalai Lama time, he was enthroned in Tibet. Now Chinese uh, army invaded and he had to flee to uh, exile in India. And uh, there's a Tibetan saying, wherever, the, wherever there is Dalai Lama, there is Tibetan government. That's the Tibetan government, you know. So, and then he is both spiritual and political leader. Um, and then more so spiritually, right? So he's regarded by everybody. So his influence uh, and uh, his stature uh, is very uh, influential. For Tibetans, he is the life and soul of Tibetan civilization, Tibetan identity, and uh, Tibetan you know, community and Tibetan nation. Um, so in 2011, he decided to separate the church and the state. So he devolved all his political authority, and I happened to get elected, right? Um, but, uh, you know, he used to introduce me as his political boss, but he used to say, but I'm his spiritual boss. In the Tibetan context, spirituality carries more influence than political authority, right? And the Lamas will always remain the preeminent, most respected and devoted leader uh, in the Tibetan world. So whether, of course he has, you know, devolved his political authority, but in his influence will always be greater than any political leader. So even in the, uh, what we call NGOs and, you know, civil society and Tibetan movement at large, his influence will be always be, uh, you know, very strong. Having said that, he doesn't exercise this authority. Uh, given a choice, if he wants to, he could. Uh, so he will always remain uh, the most popular, most respected leader in the Tibetan world. Yes, definitely. It's quite clear that the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, has a very vast influence when you see the devotion of the Tibetan people and it spiritually also to to him and to to the Tibetan cause. Um, but I think the Dalai Lama was also responsible for instituting a number of key changes in terms of Tibetan democracy, I think, during the 1960s um, with the Tibetan Charter and then cre the creation of the Tibetan parliament in exile. So moving on then to the issue of Tibetan democracy, um, the United Nations Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organizations, the UNPO, estimates the Tibetan population to be approximately 6 million individuals globally. Um, however, when we look at the data from the 2021 Tibetan elections, we see only 58, approximately 58,000 votes cast in the first ballot. So would you say this is a reflection of the strength or the, the efficacy of Tibetan democracy? Um, yes, you're right. As far as Tibetan democracy is concerned, we always say it's a gift from the Dalai Lama, right? Since 1960, he instituted the parliament. 1963, he instituted or he had Tibetans come up with the constitution uh, and then parliament, full-fledged parliament in 90, uh, full-fledged cabinet in 1991. Um, and then, you know, direct election of Kalim Tripa, then direct election of my position and devolution. So if you look at the history of Central Tibetan administration, democracy was given to Tibetan people by the Dalai Lama. Now, as far as population is concerned, Inside Tibet, we have 6 million Tibetans. That's what Unpo is saying. But in exile, we have only anywhere from 150 to 200,000 people, right? So in the last uh, 2021 election, 83,000 also registered. 
nearly 60,000 people voted. So because in exile, the population is small, the voter turnout was based on exile population. But Tibetans inside Tibet are not allowed to vote. If you vote, I mean, first of all, it's impossible to do it. But if you take part in any shape or form, you will be in trouble. You will get arrested. So that's why it's very dangerous. Even to have a photo of His Holiness Dalai Lama in Tibet means you will be in trouble. So if you have a copy of Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you could be in trouble, right? So that's why only exiled Tibetans can vote, and that's the number of the exiled Tibetans. But Chanya, I must say you have done a very good research, huh? Thank you so much. It's always best to be prepared. And we wanted to ask you some meaningful questions when it came to Tibet, because, yeah, especially for me, it's it's been my research area already. I wrote my extended essay, my dissertation on Tibet and the historical oh. for Tibetan sovereignty. So, sure. yeah, it's definitely a very interesting and very relevant contemporary topic. So I think, Aidan, we can we can move on to the second section. Yes. Of questions. Now, um, moving uh, away from Tibet's kind of more domestic and historical uh, situation, uh, I was hoping to start talking about the um, con uh, Tibet in the context of contemporary global uh, politics. Now, uh, reportedly, you have uh, previously uh, voiced support for uh, Tibet potentially adopting a sort of one country, two systems resolution like that of Hong Kong. Now, obviously, these remarks were made prior to the uh, the 2019 uh, Hong Kong riots and also the subsequent uh, national security law. Now, considering that context, um, do you still think this is a viable pathway for Tibet? Um, in isolation, you know, uh, yes, in the sense, you know, Solonis Dalai Lama has said uh, that we must come up with a win-win proposition. Um, and then, uh, you know, Chinese paramount leader Deng Xiaoping, late paramount leader Deng Xiaoping has said, other than independence, anything can be discussed, right? Based on that, the elder, elder brother of Dalai Lama Gyalutundu went to Beijing, met with Deng Xiaoping, and then he saw the Dalai Lama said, okay, if Chinese government says, other than independence, anything can be discussed, then why not we have a win-win proposition, which is to give genuine autonomy for Tibetan people within China, within the framework of the Chinese constitution. This is very reasonable. So that was the proposal, and it's called middle way approach. Unfortunately, you know, the Chinese government did not reciprocate it in kind. So we have had dialogues, but then there was no breakthrough at all. And yes, one country to system. Uh, in fact, the genuine autonomy, if you look at the document, is, you know, a bit less than Hong Kong, actually. You know, one country to system of Hong Kong. Now, with the 2019 protest and, and the subsequent national security law, uh, whatever autonomy Hong Kong had, is also diluted so much that uh, people in Hong Kong are, you know, uh, fleeing and coming to exile, right? So, uh, so if you look at the situation in Hong Kong, then what we are seeking uh, doesn't uh, uh, have some, you know, uh, realistic expectation because what Hong Kong had, if that is diluted. What we don't have and what we see little less than Hong Kong, and if you comparatively, it looks as though uh, you know the chances are low. 
But uh, if we have to reach a solution, win-win solution, then middle way approach still is the solution. No, thank you very much for that. And it's indeed an interesting point regarding the sort of having to compromise uh, with the Communist Party of China. However, moving onward, uh, now obviously one can't talk but, about- But then let me, let me point out, because you said you are British, right? Why we are compromising is because um, there was a treaty signed um, uh, in 1906, uh, between Russia and Britain, right? So they said, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Afghanistan is under the influence of British, um, no, Russia, uh, no, no, British, British, I'm sorry, Iran, part uh, uh, the Russian influence, part British influence, but it was British um, who said that in that, in that treaty, uh, that uh, China has, you know, suzerainty over Tibet, right? And then in 1904, Colonel Young husband expedition went from British India to Tibet, killed lots of Tibetans, right? And then forced a treaty on uh, Tibet, right? That prompted Qing dynasty to send army from Chengdu, right, Sichuan, to Tibet. So you see, the Tibet got caught in this great game because of British, you know. So, um, and then in 1947, when, you know, British left India, India had to take over the policy of Britain, right? So, historically, Great Britain had opportunity to recognize the reality that Tibet was an independent country. But Great Britain always, you know, fudged all these things, you know. And then later in 1907, Britain signed a treaty with China. And then said, oh, China, you have suzerainty over Tibet, you know. So not sovereignty, suzerainty over Tibet. So we got stuck. Now Chinese government uses this argument. Tibet was never independent. And quote, unquote, look at what UK's British said. It's since 19, you know, uh, since uh, early 20th century. So Britain has to uh, take a blame uh, for our, you know, legal status. Yes. But as I said, Mongolia, we had joint agreement, joint treaty. Mongolia said, we recognize you as an independent country. And Tibet recognized Mongolia as independent country. That's in 1913. No, that is indeed uh, a valid point, uh, especially regarding... And I'm not commenting on Hong Kong, basic law with the <laughs> Margaret Thatcher came up with, you know. <laughs> it, it, we're basically whenever there is an issue there is some british influence acting uh, as, as history has shown um yes and you mentioned also about india and this kind of goes into the next question obviously you can't talk about tibet without talking about india now what is your um take of uh, the relevance of tibet in sino-indian relations uh particularly when it comes to like border disputes uh, between the states as well as other uh, matters now here again, now I must, I gave you my piece to you, right? Now I must give my piece to Tara Chandi also, you know. India, <laughs> I've been interviewed by Indian media many, many times. And I always say this, you know, why are you saying Indochina border? For thousands of years, right? There was never a border, land border between India and China. It was always between Tibet and India, 
really for hundreds of you go back thousands of years, there was not even a single acre of land touching china with india now all the indian media uh, intellectuals government says it's indo china border you know and then when indian news media asked me so why are chinese troops in our border in doklam and galwan and arunachal i said you are to be blamed because you say it's indo china border Chinese troops will say, I'm here because you call it my border. I'm here because you said so, right? I said, now don't ask me, you know, don't ask me, don't ask Tibetans, you know, why are they there? We have been saying since 1951, this is Indo-Tibet border, call it so, then Chinese troops presence in Tibet in general and at the border of India will be illegal, right? But that, that's a very interesting take, actually, not not something that a lot of the media discusses about sort of um, appropriately calling the border, the Indo-Tibetan border, as opposed to the Sino-Indian border. Definitely. So do you think that, I mean, by by virtue of renaming it or like calling it in the media or referring to it in the media as this Indo-Tibetan border, that it would sort of aid the Tibetan cause in that the Chinese occupation becomes the, thereby illegitimate in Tibet? Yes, not just aid Tibetan cause, but it also helps India, you know, because we still have Indo-Tibetan border police. We still have Indo-Tibetan border police in India. Okay? There's a police force. They are called Indo-Tibetan border police. And there used to be signboards, right, measuring kilometers, uh, you know, uh, distance uh, to Tibet. If you go to Sikkim or Ladakh, they, all these were removed, you know. So India erased all all the signs and the symbols that Tibet was a different country and it was a border, right? Now in the, now in Doklam in 2014 in Doklam, uh, in Bhutan and in Sikkim, India area, when Chinese troops came and, you know, I could see all these, you know, talking heads on Indian media talking about why are Chinese troops here? What are they doing, you know? And then later I appeared and I said, by the way, you know, you are making a big fuss about it, but do you even know the word, meaning of the word doklam? You know, I said, if you don't know how to pronounce it, if you don't know the meaning, then if there is a conflict or war, you might lose the war because you don't understand the meaning of the word doklam. And they were like, oh, all the talking has been going on for weeks. And I said, for example, doklam, right? One interpretation is it's dolam, means just a walking path, okay? So if Indian troops go from this way, then it's an easy, easy path, then the Chinese troops could be waiting on the other side. But Doklam, another word, if it's Toklam, means difficult road. As you better have locals guiding Indian troops if you're going, because it's a very difficult road, right? And third word, if it's Doklam, it means nomadic road, okay? so. Similar sounding, but three different words, three different meanings. If it's a nomadic word, you better have some shepherd or nomad guiding you. You know, you will, you might lose the way. So you've been talking about doklam for weeks, but no one understood the meaning of the word doklam. And they're asking which territory is this? Is ours or not? You know, you know, is it Buddhist area? Is Sikkimese area? Is Indian area? I said, well, come on, take a break. First, let's get to basic. Why did you call it Chinese border? That's why Chinese troops are there. 
Now you don't know the meaning of Doklam and you are arguing Indochina border and Chinese truth. I said, you messed up the whole thing, okay? And you are in, now in the, there are 30,000 troops facing 30,000 Chinese troops, right? A Chinese side has built helipad, highways, and a nearby village also, right? I said, you know, you have to wake up. We've been telling you for 60 years. And then Galwan in uh, 2020, May, Galwan, uh, more than 100 Indian troops were injured, right? Really beaten up. And then obviously Chinese troops were also beaten up. Now everybody's talking about Galwan. Same old story. And we've been saying since 1950s, I said, when Tibet was occupied, Chinese leaders, including Mao Zedong said, Tibet is the palm. We must occupy Tibet, the palm, then go after five fingers, Ladakh, Nepal, Bhutan, Sikkim, and Arunachal. They have declared since 1950s, and we've been saying since 1950s for 60 years, the Indian you know, inte intelligence, whatever, in intellectuals and media government just simply don't listen to us. What we are saying is we are quoting Chinese leaders. So they say, why are they in Galwan? Now, recently there was an attack in Arunachal. Why are they in Arunachal? They have always said for 60 years, they will come out of five fingers. You know, Ladakh, Nepal, Bhutan, Sikkim, Arunachal, they are coming, you know. So, um, so it, the, all this issue, there, you know, one should know there is no Indo-China border conflict without understanding a Tibetan issue. So it's Tibetan area, it's Tibetan land. And now people say it's messed up because you don't know where the border is because we knew where the border was, you know. <laughs> and then your Indian leaders also said, oh, if Chinese are going to take over Tibet, it's okay, let them take over. Not even a grass grows, you know, in that area. So what's the big deal if they take some rocks and in Rocky Mountains? That's what they said. Now, the Chinese troops have come and Indian government is spending billions of dollars. You know, in Galwan, they're like 50,000 Indian troops are facing 50,000 Chinese troops. Now, a lot of people are talking about Taiwan. Yes, one should talk about Taiwan. But potentially, there is more danger in the Indo-Tibet border area. Um, so, uh, I think, you know, the, the people in South Asia should know uh, Indo-Tibet, indo there, 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 there never was, and there, there isn't Indochina border. It's Indo-Tibet border. That's certainly um, a point that is rarely made, at least even on this side of the uh, yeah. uh, of the planet, because um, obviously even the BBC... it's made, but rarely repeated by others. Yeah. Well, as I say, um, it's even the first for myself of hearing such a point, uh, which is quite interesting. But I want to um, kind of move. Uh, outside of the region and look more about kind of uh, Tibetans' interactions with uh, other members of the international community and other aspects of the international community. Would you be able to kind of uh, describe sort of Tibet's relations uh, uh, with other like uh, nations such as like the United States or such as the United Kingdom? Obviously, you mentioned about the United Kingdom's uh, effective uh, responsibility of what the current issue is, um, but also uh, talk about Tibet's uh, engagements with international organizations like the United Nations, obviously with difficulty with like China being a United Nations Security Council member. Now, United Nations, you know, as you know, uh, with the war in Ukraine, you can clearly see it's ineffective. You know, Secretary General is making 
uh, all kinds of statements, but uh, Russia ignores uh, them, and then uh, UN Security Council cannot do anything about it. Uh, even the UN uh, General Assembly cannot have proper debate, right? So 140 countries have uh, condemned the invasion and the war, um, but then United Nations as a body cannot do anything. So similarly on Tibet, you know, China is a veto uh, power. Uh, you can't have a dialogue on Tibet at the United Nations. Even at the UN Human Rights Commission, it's dominated by uh, Chinese you know, and other rogue nations, or non-democratic nations, right? Um, each time you try to move a resolution, for example, they, you know, everybody, broadly, people agree with evidence that there is genocide or crime against humanity going on in Xinjiang, in the Uyghur area. So uh, even the UN Human Rights Commissioner has come up with a report saying potentially there is crime against humanity. But when they tabled the resolution at the UN Human Rights Commission, they lost. Um, so more countries voted against them. And more Muslim countries voted against a Muslim issue of Xinjiang. Can you imagine that? Um, so when you are in that situation, the United Nations is essentially ineffective. So now you all are students of international relations. So you must visualize what kind of international body you want to have next. Because, you know, we are almost entering the, entering a scenario where League of Nations, you know, after World, First World War, League of Nations was created. It turned out to be ineffective, led to Second World War. Now, after Second World War, after 70 years, the United Nations has been ineffective. Now, uh, with the war in Ukraine made it more glaring, um, so now it's ineffective. So you have to reconstitute uh, another international body which can address, you know, basic human rights issues and major uh, occupation and threat to sovereignty. Now, as far as, you know, uh, British UK is concerned, in my 10 years term, uh, I was neither allowed to enter the UK foreign ministry, nor I was allowed to enter the State Department or the White House. So I had to meet them outside. So, you know, if uh, UK, uh, doesn't matter whether Washington DC or London or Brussels, if they have a nice staff, uh, quite a courageous and conscientious ones, uh, they'll book a nice hotel room, right? Uh, and then, you know, or, uh, or uh, you know, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a booth in a uh, nice restaurant. So uh, I'm treated uh, quite nicely. Uh, not food, but some drinks and snacks, things like that. Um, and that's all they do. Uh, but then, no, I, I could not enter uh, uh, the foreign ministries. And they say, because you run a government exile, that's why we can't let you enter. But when uh, there was trouble in Syria, Syrian government in exile was allowed to enter. When there was a Venezuelan problem, Venezuelan government in exile was allowed to enter. But you know, we were not allowed to enter. So it took me 10 years to enter the State Department White House. So finally, I entered the State Department White House. So they're nice people, you know, they're nice people, but uh, have their own compulsion. So the Chinese government, the Chinese people always say that, oh, Tibet issue is a Western issue, Western government support you. But I have walked the streets of uh, London, but not, not able to enter the foreign ministry. Having said that, I entered both the parliament of UK and the US Congress. So the speaker 
uh, of the UK Parliament, you know, uh, acknowledged my presence uh, in the Parliament. So he was very nice. And I had an event after that. He came and attended and supported it. Uh, and the US Congress too, the Speaker Nancy Pelosi was my one of my main hosts, you know. So each time I went to Washington DC, she always met me, uh, met me at the Speaker's office. This is important, okay? Yes. Uh, so, um, so, you know, when you run a government exile, it's always a challenge. It's a very difficult job. Uh, on the one hand, you are in exile. Issue of Tibet is not solved for 50 years. And you think you know you will give a give a shot, and then when you actually go to various capitals, uh, they don't meet you inside their offices, right? So it's a major challenge. Um, but you keep doing it. Yes. Um, it's quite a valid point, uh, especially regarding the um issues with as like you mentioned before uh this interview regarding like the uk still trying to maintain relations with china and so it's very very careful with the tibetan issue um i mean although nowadays less so because we prevented the chinese ambassador from speaking at parliament uh so it seems that maybe next time there might be a chance of uh joining but moving on um, less on the kind of the current situation and looking more towards the future. Now you've uh, been well known for your support of a kind of nonviolent resistance. Uh, and this has kind of characterized a, a lot of Tibetan uh, resistance in the past few decades. Um, do you believe that this future uh, will continue to define uh, the movement? And if so, are there any means by which it could be made more effective? I think nonviolence uh, will remain. And has to remain, uh, partly because we follow Gandhian policy of Ahimsa. Um, and then his son is Lama, uh, advocates nonviolence. Um, so uh, violence is also is futile, I think so. Um, so it will remain, it will continue to uh, remain so. Uh, and then, you know, we are appealing to the global conscience, right? And look at the war in Ukraine. Do you want that? You know, do you want this kind of wars? Look at war in Syria, you know. Um, so everybody kind of ignores nonviolence, uh, but then realizes uh, the importance and significance of it when there it, when there is violence, like in Syria and you know, uh, and now in Ukraine. Uh, so you know, uh, if you don't want uh, Ukraine-like situation, uh, then you have to support nonviolence to begin with, right? Um, so that's why I think our approach is valid. And that was also um, kind of moving on from that. Obviously, you spoke about the not con continuing the nonviolent resistance. Yeah, you keep moving on, huh? Yes. <laughs> it's unfortunately a phrase that I just keep saying. My apologies. Um, you don't move on, you know. <laughs> well, 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 we'll see. We'll see. But um, kind of on the same basis, you talked about previously, obviously, the issue of kind of um, you know, not being met often at times at like official capacity in like foreign ministries and such yeah. um, because of like the other countries' relations with China. However, considering now it's been 72 years since the annexation of Tibet, we're kind of leaning towards then. Um, do you think there is a risk that uh, the resistance movement kind of uh, fades into obscurity? Um, is there like a possibility that Tibet, for lack of a better word, um, becomes forgotten by the international community as time goes on? 
No, we are 72 years mature, you know. So we have been through a roller coaster. We were forgotten on and off. In 60s, we were number one issue. 70s, we were forgotten. 80s, we came back. And 90s, you know, and then. So, you know, you just, you know, it's you just go through this um, kind of a roller coaster, you know. So you have to give at it. <clears throat> so we are veteran. We know we will be there for a long time to come till our basic freedom is realized. And also, you know, we are Buddhist, um, you know, uh, Buddhism is 2000, almost 600 years uh, uh, civilization old and communism is only 100 plus years old. So compared to Buddhism, communism is a baby, you know, so we know we have an advantage. Yeah. So in the long run, we will prevail. And look at the history of Buddhism too. It, you know, it also went through up and down all the time, you know. Uh, so that's a Buddhist notion of impermanence. All we need to do, uh, you know, in freedom struggle, all we need to do is survive. As long as we survive, we have a chance. But the great power, they have to maintain great power. So they have disadvantage. Maintaining great power is very difficult because all the great power, are, you know, eventually they come down. So, you know, as far as, you know, long term, uh, challenges and prospects are concerned. We have a better prospect because all we need to do is survive. And if we can strengthen and sustain it, all the better. As long as you survive, you have a shot. And on that, with a, a very, very optimistic uh, response to that, um, and rather inspiring, some may say, um, before we conclude, and on the final question, uh, obviously in three decades' time or less than that, uh, it will be the 100th anniversary uh, since the annexation of Tibet. Short of liberation, uh, is there any particular vision for Tibet you would like to see realised? Basically, our concern is 6 million Tibetans inside Tibet, right? As long as they get you know, genuine autonomy, as, the, as long as administrations inside Tibet are manned by Tibetans and Tibetan culture, Tibetan language and are preserved and protected and promoted, you know, um, and then uh, Tibetans are self-sustaining and self-running, then I think it will be okay. So we have to reach a common ground. Now, as far as the Solaris Dalai is concerned, he has been saying this. He has a very Buddhist approach. Look, you know, uh, what you did to Tibet is wrong, but I'm willing to, you know, uh, overlook this and come to a compromise, you know. And we have been knocking at the doors of compromise for six decades now. Um, yes. Um, and then it has not worked out, mainly because Chinese government still maintain a hardline policies. Um, and now they are showing the same hardline policies towards the world, right? Uh, with the COVID not telling, not revealing as to the origin or the causes of the COVID, uh, with UK and with you know uh, with Europe and with America, Chinese government is you know now uh, showcasing its hardline policies, um, and we have faced this for sixty years. We have always told people, as Chinese government, Communist Party of China, at the end, is a hardliner. No one believed us. They thought, oh, we are going to do business with China. We'll make ourselves rich and we'll make them rich. And they're reasonable. Now they all are saying, hey, how come we didn't know they were hardliners? So, Duh, we've been saying that for 60 years, you know, and now UK is coming around, India is coming around, Washington DC is coming around. So it's in a way, uh, it's a realization. Uh, through realization, I hope 
there will be realistic policies and approaches towards Beijing and on the policy of Tibet. So we want to solve the issue of Tibet peacefully through dialogue. Yeah, certainly a very relevant point, I guess, considering all the contemporary developments that we see unfolding all around us, and whether it be in, in relations between India and China, relationships, relations between China and America, or just the world at large when you see what's happening in Ukraine, in the Middle East. Uh, so I guess, yeah, the, while the future of Tibet remains undetermined, I think your remarks and your insights today have certainly outlined at the very least a vision for Tibet and the Tibetan resistance movement that many would would hope to see realized. So I guess we'd like to take this opportunity to, to thank you once again for your time. And we, we really look forward to following your efforts within the course. So thank you, Dr. Sange.